This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark is sponsored by HSBC, winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. I have to applaud you for not calling it Sibelius Group. It really seemed there <laughs> like every former official was adding group after their name. Welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It is Thursday, April 28th. I'm Tori Stowell, an economics reporter with Bloomberg News in D.C., and I am joined by my co-host, Dan Moss, our executive economics editor in New York. Hey, Dan. Hi, Tori. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if everyone has seen the headlines lately, but the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, is back in the news. United Health Group, which is a health insurer, last week announced that it will drop out of the government organized health insurance markets in at least 23 states because it's losing too much money on those policies. And United Health had about almost 800,000 ACA customers as of March 31st. So there are a decent number of people who will have to shop for new plans or be left for with fewer options for coverage. And Obamacare has also remained a hot issue during this election cycle. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll last month showed 78% of registered voters say health care is very or extremely important to them when it comes to deciding who they'll vote for. And that was second only to, you guessed it, the economy and jobs. With the law staying squarely in the spotlight some six years after its passage, we thought this was a great opportunity to break down exactly what it is, what it's supposed to do, and how that's been working out. And because so much of the debate centres on economic issues, the impact on businesses, on employment, on healthcare inflation, Benchmark is the perfect forum for a discussion. That's right. And I can't speak for everyone else, but I do feel like every time I hear a discussion about the Affordable Care Act, it's usually very one-sided. And so we have a solution for that here on Benchmark. We have two guests here with me in the D.C. studio to help us make sense of it all. First off, we have the former U.S. Health Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. She helped President Barack Obama shepherd the law through Congress back in 2010, and she oversaw the writing of tens of thousands of pages of regulations and traveled regularly to persuade Americans to sign up for coverage through the new online marketplaces. After resigning two years ago, she now runs her own consulting firm, Sibelius Resources. I have to applaud you for not calling it Sibelius Group. It really seemed there (laughs) like every former official was adding group after their name. We also have Jim Capretta, who spent more than two decades studying American health care policy. And lately, he's specifically been looking at market-based alternatives to the Affordable Care Act. He's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, Jim, I hope you won't mind me placing the American Enterprise Institute on the spectrum of think tanks that are clustered around D.C. How would you characterise that think tank? Well, I think it's fair fair to say that uh, most of it's an independent organization. People can take their own point of view, but most of the people there tend to be on the on the conservative side of the spectrum, or so, to some degree. Good to have you both here. Thank you. Good to be with you. 
Dan and I are going to start out with a brief overview of ACA just to give all of our listeners sort of a foundation to work off of for the rest of the show. So it had the sweeping goals of both giving more people health insurance and reshaping a medical system that spends more and delivers less than any other wealthy country. It was signed into law on March 2010 and took full effect in October 2013, and it has a few key features that you've probably heard about at some point or another. First off, the law requires most U.S. citizens and legal residents to have health insurance. So if your employer doesn't offer it, you need to go out and find it on your own or else you have to pay a fine. So when you hear individual mandate, that's what we're talking about. And the goal behind that was to make sure we had enough healthy customers signing up to balance out the cost of sicker ones. And if you meet certain income limits, the government also provides subsidies to help you pay for that insurance. The law also created state-based health insurance exchanges. These websites that are sort of like a kayak.com, but for comparing health insurance packages from different providers. States can run their own exchanges, but in many cases, they've deferred to the federal government to do so. Thirdly, employers who don't provide health coverage and have the equivalent of 50 or more full-time employees will be fined. Those who do offer coverage have to pass an affordability test, and employers with more than 200 employees have to automatically enroll their employees into plans with an option for employees to opt out. The law also introduced separate exchanges for small businesses to purchase coverage for their employees. And lastly, the law expanded the number of people eligible for Medicaid though not all states have chosen to do so. And I know that we've just thrown a ton of information at everyone, but hopefully our guests here can help us digest it all and come up with some answers about what's been working and what hasn't. So to start, I thought it'd be good for our listeners to get a sense of where each of you stand on the issue. So succinctly, if you could, if you had to label the law grandly, I guess, a success or a failure, which would it be and why? Do you want to start us off, Kathleen? Well, sure. Um, I think overall it's done pretty well. There are some fragile parts of the law that are still evolving, but um, we have the lowest number of uninsured people that we've ever had in this country. So access to insurance for a part of the population who didn't have affordable insurance is definitely working. About 20 million New lives are enrolled in either Medicaid-expanded programs or in the marketplaces. Uh, Health costs, in spite of all of the, I would say, noise uh, and conflicting reports out there, overall health inflation for expenditures across the board, government health inflation for the two big programs, Medicare and Medicaid, and what individuals are spending is rising at the slowest level in 50 years. And that continues to happen so that while um, no one can say costs have gone down, they have been rising at a much slower pace. And I think for the first time ever, health providers tell me there is a real um, revolution underway in terms of how health care is being delivered by providers because the government has chosen to use its enormous pay lever, about a trillion dollars a year, to move as quickly as possible from fee-for-service payments, which meant the more stuff you do, the more dollars you get paid, into a more quality-based, outcome-based payment system, better care, 
lower costs, more improvements along the way, and that is beginning to show some very promising results. Jim, what do you think? Well, uh, I would say that the law in general has, and you'll be surprised by this, succeeded in the ways that uh, were fairly easy to succeed at, and but is not doing well in all the things that, of course, are harder and more difficult to, to do. Um, the law basically expanded Medicaid to many millions of more people. That didn't take too much. The, the eligibility processes were already in place all around the country. Uh, it's difficult politically. As you can see, there's a lot of resistance to it. But essentially what they did is they changed the income levels to a higher level and started signing up a lot more people in advertising and through the outreach system that were already in place, brought them more into the Medicaid program. So of the people, the Congressional Budget Office says that in 2015, the law likely reduced the people who were uninsured or otherwise would have been uninsured by about 17 million people on a base of probably around 50 million or so. That is not a small matter, so let's all stipulate that they, the law has done a, that part of it. Um, but I would say if you look at the exchanges, which are also spart supposed to be a big part of covering the uninsured and changing how insurance is delivered and, and establishing a new insurance system, I think there it's largely it's limping along, but it's got a lot of problems. Uh, first of all, the number of uninsured that have gone into the exchanges is probably quite low. You don't have an exact estimate, but it's probably in the low single-digit millions. So most of the people that ended up in the exchanges were either insured and maybe not so great insurance before, or were in the individual market that essentially got closed down by uh, the ACA and they were forced into this market. Uh, people who can voluntarily decide to move into the exchanges or not, especially if they're paying their own premiums, are deciding in huge numbers not to do it. They don't find the products attractive, the premiums are too high, the deductibles are far too high. So they're what, settling for a fine? Or? They end up paying the fine or they stay uninsured or they try to find a way into the employer marketplace if they can. Jim, if some of this was so easy or relatively easy, as you mentioned at the start, it, why wasn't it done sooner? Oh, for, for the, the political circumstances weren't right. I mean, I didn't say that it was easy politically. I meant it was easy administratively in the sense that we did many Medicaid expansions over the last 40 years. This was a large one, but another one in a long line of Medicaid expansions that brought more people into the program. Uh, frankly, we did a huge expansion in Medicaid-like coverage for children in the 1990s of almost comparable size. And so this wasn't unprecedented in terms of bringing more people into a publicly subsidized insurance system. It was sort of a well-known path to how to do that. The difficult part is trying not to have as many people on publicly subsidized insurance, having a stable insurance market that is outside of publicly run insurance that is more like a private system. There, I think the law is having a lot of difficulty, frankly. Well, Jim, you mentioned the Congressional Budget Office, and we're going to get back to that in a sec. Let's just take a step back and consider uh, one of the primary goals of the Affordable Care Act, which is to make health care insurance accessible to more people. Now, as of the end of the third open enrolment period under the ACA, 12.7 million had signed up for coverage in those marketplaces, up from 11.7 million last year and 8 million in 2014. Now, while that's in line with the target the health department announced ahead of this year's open enrolment 
it's short of the 21 million the CBO projected for 2016 back in March of last year. And as I think you mentioned, CBO recently lowered its forecast. And in 2014, which, as Kathleen mentioned, is the first full year of Obamacare's coverage expansion, the percentage of people without health insurance was 10.4 percent, or 33 million people, according to the Census Bureau. And that's down from 41.8 million people in 2013. So it looks like the law has achieved that goal of providing more people with health insurance. But at what sort of cost? How has this affected households and and how has this affected the U.S. budget? Do you want to start? Well, I think, again, what we're talking about is a slice of the overall insurance market. Uh, The president really had a couple of choices, and Congress had choices going into this. Do you start all over, wipe the slate clean, and do, as some people suggested, and one of our Democratic candidates is still suggesting, kind of a Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in a single-payer public plan. That That's was an Bernie option. Sanders. That's Bernie Sanders, but that was a, a lively debate in 2009 when this whole law was being looked at. Or do you, and this is the path that the president and the majority of Congress chose at the time, do you try and fill the gap? So leave in place the employer plans where they're there, and 94 95% of larger employers offer health insurance, continue to offer health insurance. Uh, Veterans have their own insurance plans. Those over 65 have a separate insurance plans. Those low-income Americans. So there was a portion of the market, the individual market and some small groups, that was really on their own. Everybody was medically underwritten, so your own health issues were taken into account. You could be totally locked out by an insurance company, You could be locked out for the conditions which caused you to be sick in the first place. And you could be priced pretty much anywhere over the boards. That's the portion of the market that the Affordable Care Act addressed. And um, there has always been a lot of churn in the market, people in and out. If they get a job at Ford Motor Company, they drop their own insurance and join the Ford plan. If they leave that job because they retire early, they're back on their own. And also some people just signing up for plans and then canceling it. You bet. Um, that's always happened in the individual market. People moved in, in and out about six months at a time. So some of what we're seeing in the new marketplaces is very familiar. Lots of churn, lots of folks coming in and out, incomes change, job circumstances change. Um, not surprisingly, people who were older and sicker were desperate for some coverage, particularly comprehensive coverage, where their medical conditions would not be blocking them from getting insurance. They were the first ones in the door. They were the first ones in the gate. They are older and sicker than a lot of people who have not chosen yet to come into that market. So I think some of what we're seeing is was predictable. This is a more expensive population. And when you put everybody in the same pool, which Mm -hmm. is what insurance is supposed to be, balancing risk, you get sick and I don't one year and then I get sick the next year and you don't. That's that's a risk pool. You don't need everybody to get sick at once um, or you can't afford it. So some of what we're seeing, I think, was able to be predicted at the outset and able to be looked at, there is more competition in this market than there has ever been before. 
Uh, there are more choices that consumers have than they've ever had before, but it's still a brand new kind of fledgling uh, risk pool that needs to be developed, and we need more younger and healthier people to join that market. Yeah, and Jim, before we go to break, I mean, what do you think is the scope for that? Do you think younger and healthier people will actually join the market? What does future enrollment prospects look like? Well, I mean, I think I think it's going to be tough, frankly. I think the the view of the and plans that are being offered on the exchanges is starting to harden because. Look, I mean, anybody who's below about 200 or 250 percent of the federal poverty line in income, which for a single person is, you know, $25,000 a year up to about $30,000 a year, they're going to get a very large subsidy from the federal government that makes the premium relatively attractive inside the exchanges. For anyone who has to pay the premium themselves, slightly higher incomes where it's phased down, uh, the products are looking quite unattractive to them. You can look in polling data and, and see it. And actually, if you just go online and look at some of the offerings, you'll see. Yeah, I actually did it this week. You know, to see a bronze plan or silver plan with a with a you know very large deductible for a single person, and still a premium of six or seven or eight hundred dollars a month. You know, people are going to start to say, "I can't afford that," right? Because I'm going to pay a lot of premium before and a deductible before I see any coverage. So, I think the the attractiveness of the policies is really dependent on the amount of federal subsidy a person is getting, and that's the difficulty. It's really bifurcated the market for people with incomes in the eligibility category where they get a big subsidy. They are finding the products relatively attractive. Above that. Not, not so much. The only thing I would say before we go to break, just so people have what Jim said close at hand, I, I think there is a some misguided view that somehow this subsidy is an unusual thing. In virtually every employer plan offered, the individual employee has a major share of that plan paid by his or her employer. And that's the mindset that really this plan was constructed under. Since these folks are often mom-and-pop operators working on their own, entrepreneurs have two or three jobs, they don't have an employer paying a share. So the subsidy really is the substitute for an employer plan. I'm not sure most people in any insurance plan could pay 100% out of their own paycheck, out of their own pocket. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people have looked at the subsidy as something unusual. It actually mirrors what happens each and every day in workplace plans where the employer picks up a major share of the tab and then the employee kicks in for him or herself for their dependents and moves on. Well, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but when we come back, we will continue our discussion on what's working and what's not with the Affordable Care Act and what this year's election may mean for the law after this break. This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark is sponsored by HSBC. With over 8,000 global relationship managers on the ground in over 60 countries, HSBC makes your global ambition their local business. HSBC. Let's turn to healthcare costs. Healthcare inflation as measured by the personal consumption expenditures, that's a gauge the Federal Reserve looks at closely, has trailed overall core inflation for three consecutive years. Now, economists say at least part of that slowdown may be attributed to Obamacare, which encourages shorter hospital stays and limits on unnecessary procedures. But from what we gather, healthcare costs are broadly expected to start 
re-accelerating. Jim, why is that? Well, first of all, they did re-accelerate. So in 2014, if you look at the national health expenditure accounts, the accounts that are looked at and run by the government, they announced last year that in 2014 that those costs went up nationwide by 5.3%, the highest level in, I think, seven years. Uh, the expectation from those same people is that the increase will be similar in 2015 and 16 and beyond. Uh, I think this notion that the uh, Affordable Care Act is related to the broad slowdown in health spending, I, I, this is one area where I think I will disagree with, with uh, the Secretary, is that this, I, don't, I don't believe that's the case. Why is um, that? If you go back to 2002, health care inflation in the United States was about 9.6%. It fell to 4.8 by 2008. So if there was something associated with the ACA that brought, and, and the con trend continued then into 2009, 10, and 11, you'd be hard-pressed to say people were in, anticipating, you know, back in 3 and 4 and 5, you know, that the ACA was going to be enacted and therefore, you know, resulted in this broad slowdown. Moreover, there's been a global slowdown in health spending across the entire industrialized world of comparable amounts that has occurred in the United States. Now, I know we think the ACA did a lot of great things, but it probably didn't slow down health spending globally. Okay? And yet this period does coincide with, you mentioned 2008, a rather apocalyptic economic environment. Absolutely. Followed by a recovery, certainly within the G7, that's been uh, okay, but not super awesome. Now, could that not be driving this rather than anything to do with the ACA. If you don't mind, I'll just say one more word about this. I, I, of course, that's the case. Uh, the government actuaries that look at this for the government, for the executive branch, have reached that exact conclusion. They run a regression analysis several times going back decades, and the slowdown that has occurred in recent years is very predictable based on the economic conditions that occurred in the United States at that time. So look, I'm not trying to dismiss entirely everything that is in the ACA. Some of those provisions have, are having, I think, a marginal effect. But by and large, the accountable care organization phenomenon, the bundled payments, the readmission policy, if you look at the estimates that were done both at the time they were enacted and since, they are minor events in a trillions and trillions of dollar health system. And let me just well, push you on. a little. Could let me in? just push you a little bit there. Could it not also reflect? Except, can I get in this conversation before you move in a different direction? Because I think I think it's important to have a baseline of what we're talking about. I don't think there's any question nor any dispute that the economic downturn had a significant impact on health expenditures overall. Everyone agrees to that. What I think there is some um, dispute about, and now uh, I have seen, I gather, differing reports than Jim is reading. A lot of economists are beginning to also say now in 2016, eight years after the economic downturn, that there's a continued slow down in health costs. The 5% increase is above what was seen in prior years, but it's significantly below what the trend line was uh, before the turndown. So we're still in a period of compressed growth and 
in spite of the fact that Medicare has more people coming into the program each and every day than they've ever seen, larger enrollments, Medicaid is larger enrollments, their overall health inflation costs are at about 1.3%. So we're still seeing a change in costs, uh, not necessarily due to, as Jim said, some of the new ways of paying providers, organizing providers, but I think there's a very significant change underway within the health system, understanding that the payment system is going to look very different in the future and that money is actually coming out of the system for the first time. I want to hit two more points before we run out of time. One of those is one that's very near and dear to my heart as an economics reporter, and that is uh, the ACA's effect on employment. And, um, you know, economists themselves are still debating what the effect is there. And, you know, some have said that it would encourage employers to shift more people into part-time work to avoid providing that health insurance and the regulatory headache that would come with trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and others have said, you know, it, it, it sort of liberates employees to a certain extent, allows them to strike it on their own. Etc. Why is the impact on employment so murky, and how do you eventually think that'll shake out? Well, I think the the gold standard for looking at this is probably the Congressional Budget Office, and there's a lot of forces going in both directions. I'll grant you that in in the ACA, there's some provisions that economists might say might improve employment, but the biggest effects, according to CBO, go in the opposite direction toward dampening labor force participation, and what they estimated is that by 2019 or so, two and a half million people, full-time equivalent of, of hours worked, will drop out of the labor force due to the incentives of the ACA. And What's the, the mechanism is, there? Yeah. The reason is that the subsidy structure is provided for people so that they can, first of all, a lot of people can now get health insurance without working. So it used to be that if you were not on Medicaid, the most straightforward way to get health insurance was actually to actually go into the labor force, try to get an employer that had insurance, and get coverage that way. Now, that's not the greatest way to do things in the world, but that's, that's the reality. So when you provided a lot of insurance options for people outside of the employment sector, some people do drop out of the uh, labor market. The second big effect is you phase out the subsidies by income. So as you earn more money, you get a smaller subsidy by the federal government. That's, according to CBO, it's like essentially like an implicit tax on earned income on top of the payroll tax, on top of the income tax, and it's quite substantial. And so some people in the 200 to 300% of the poverty range will actually work less than they otherwise would have. Well, let's just keep with the job market for just one second, and Kathleen, you may want to jump in here. You know, Jim, this is, hoping a, to. this is an uneven economic recovery to be sure, but one bright spot is the labor market. It's going gangbusters. Unemployment rate in the United States is approaching 5%. Jobless claims are the lowest in a couple of generations. I mean, if this was such a dire thing for the labor market, wouldn't it be showing up? Well, I, I think you know, as someone who's looked at this carefully, that the people that have exited the labor force is still in these several millions uh, compared to what it was prior to the downturn. So, so much of that is due to retirements, right? There's some of it is early retirements, but some of it is people who just decided at 45, 50 that they would rather, you know, they find the prospects not very good, and so they're not entering the, the job market. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue that the labor market is great when the number of people in the United States, the population has grown, and the number of people in the United States working today is still not fully caught up to 
the trend line that would have been had we not had the recession. Kathleen? Well, I, I find this discussion, um, uh, frankly, sort of baffling, given the predictions which were dire when this law was passed. The prediction was that this ACA Obamacare bill would be a job killer. We have had uh, 14 million new jobs over the last 73 months, the longest continued growth of jobs in the country. So I think at a macro level, it's very hard to argue that we've had a job killer bill. The CBO data, I also take a slightly different lens. No question that there may be some people impacted by subsidies. There also are lots of people who no longer have to stay in a job beyond what they would like to do until they get to Medicare eligibility age 65. Because now, if you retire early, you have an option for health insurance that you didn't have before. And actually, the single largest uninsured population prior to the passage of this bill were people 55 to 65. So there was some job lock based on I have to stay for insurance. My wife has to take an off-farm job to get insurance for the family farm. We have to make certain kinds of job choices, which now, hopefully, people are able to start their own business, look at a second career, do other things. So there is some way of looking at also this job flexibility, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but maybe a very positive idea. And finally, the largest growth sector, one of the largest growth sectors in this new jobs economy is in the healthcare area. Lots of people coming into the healthcare area for service delivery, for tech involvement, IT has exploded, uh, startups have exploded. So it's been its own economic boost, I would say, over the last five years. Well, I think uh, we, we need to wrap up here shortly, but I think this is an important part, and I, I do want to get to this part of uh, the interview. So I want to turn to the future of the law. Congressional Republicans have led effort after effort to repeal the law, and we know that it does remain fairly a little unpopular with voters. 47% have an unfavorable view of the ACA compared with 41% who have a favorable favorable view, and that's fairly well split along party lines. Um, Ted Cruz has promised to repeal it. Donald Trump has also promised to repeal it and replace it with, quote, something so much better. Um, and on the other hand, Hillary Clinton wants to keep Obamacare but fix its shortcomings. Jim, why the focus, do you think, from Republican lawmakers on repealing instead of making what we have better? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I need to say that I don't think the, just for, the, for your listeners, I don't think the stances of the two leading Republican candidates is very uh, satisfactory. I'm, I, I think if they're going to talk about health care, I think they're going to, whoever becomes the nominee, will need to provide to the public a much clearer view of what vision they have for health care in the United States that would actually work as practical and could pass in the Congress. So th there's going to be an obligation, and I think both of the leading candidates for the time being have fallen way short of that. So having said that, I think in Congress, the, the main view is that you know, the, 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 there is a basic philosophical problem here that needs to be addressed and settled and maybe eventually will be, perhaps in favor of the law that's already on the books. Which is, which is, is that 
how much authority over the health system do you want to have residing with the federal government? Right. I mean, I think that's fundamentally the issue. And of course, in the short term, you know, it doesn't make that much difference. It's really over a 10 or 15 or 20 year period where the federal government can exert a lot more authority and power over the health system, as we were just talking about it, with delivery system reform through Medicare, changing how physicians are, are paid, changing the quality metrics for physicians, changing how one, one rates insurance plans. The federal government has a huge amount of authority now under this law. And I think the basic concern amongst opponents in the Congress, I mean, people who actually understand how it works, is that they think it's too much that over time that's going to erode its quality and it'll force a lot of people into publicly run and publicly subsidized products and publicly regulated products that will be of, of lower value. Do you think, Kathleen, that it's realistic that this whole thing gets rolled back if we, if we do get a Republican president in 2016? And if not, why do you think Republicans keep focusing on it? Well, there certainly has been a constant drumbeat since the day the president signed this law uh, that um, it should be repealed and replaced. I think that second term, I would absolutely agree with Jim. Six years after the law was signed, I still have no idea what that means. And I'm not sure that there have been many viable suggestions put forth about what that means, except let's run just a national high-risk pool. And everybody who's sick can be in a risk pool and go back to the old days where insurers could basically pick and choose who they wanted to cover in, in this individual market. Again, if you work for Ford Motor Company and you sign up for their health plan, they don't go through your own personal health history. They don't limit your ability to participate. You're an employee. You're in. So the individual market is really what we're talking about. Should people be able to buy insurance? Should they be pooled together? I, I think there are lots of areas of this law that could uh, have some significant improvement. I hope we get to a discussion in the next Congress where maybe that's an effort. How do we move forward? What kinds of alternatives are there to ensuring more people bringing down costs, making delivery system reform really work and accelerate the progress that's been made. How can we work together to do it as opposed to relitigating the past? So we'll see what happens, but I would agree with Jim. I'm eager to see what the candidates mean by replace and what proposition they are willing to put forward to the public. Well, thanks so much to both of you for joining us. I know I learned a lot today, and I hope our listeners did too. And Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at DanielMossDC and at Tori Stilwell. We'll see you next week. <laughs> This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark was sponsored by HSBC. With HSBC, you have up-to-the-minute visibility and control of your global cash positions, so your business can move at the speed of opportunity. HSBC.